my name is Scott Walker, and my leadership lesson is leadership is about influence. If you can't influence the people and the teams around you, you're not really a leader. Hello, and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. I'm Kate McGee, the editor of Management Today. And I'm Ailish Cronin, staff writer at Management Today. In this episode, I speak to Scott Walker, who is a former Scotland Yard detective turned kidnapped for ransom negotiator, who's written a book about how to approach negotiations, business negotiations in a more effective way, using the lessons that he's learned from his own career. When it comes to communicating during a business negotiation, he believes that leaders need to, rather than taking a traditional tough approach, they should be more thoughtful and inquisitive and essentially park their own ego and allow other people in the boardroom to have their say during a negotiation. They need to be more emotionally aware and regulate their own emotions so they don't let any anger or frustration get to them and overwhelm them. So allow themselves to sit in that anger for maybe a minute or so and then clear their head and proceed so they don't let that anger or frustration cloud any decision making. Although he does say that, you know, hardballing is okay every once in a while, but because leaders want repeat business and they want to succeed time and time again, they need to take a step back and listen to the people in the room and not let that anger kind of overpower them. And he says they need to seek cooperation and collaboration with the people on their team, whoever's in the boardroom, and be able to trust that everyone is on the same side and everyone wants the best outcome from that negotiation. So it's it's all about taking a step back, taking a breather, and not letting your emotions cloud your judgment. Mm, it's interesting, isn't it? I've interviewed a few hostage negotiators before, and I'm always interested in how important they say it is to understand yourself first mm. before you try and connect with others. And that the more you understand your own triggers and your own thought patterns, and the more able, I guess, you are to emotionally regulate yourself, mm. that the more effective you'll end up being in the conversation. Mm. And I think, and you make this point in your piece, that the idea of that stereotypical sort of alpha yes. leader that's going to kind of the best sort of outcome for a negotiation mm. is to have made sure the other person is pinned to the floor and mm. given up everything is um is not really what you should be aiming for and it's mm. kind of a it doesn't work if you end no, up doing it derails that in the, long the situation run. before you've even got to where you want to be yeah so having a little bit of anger is okay and just letting it kind of course through you just to allow yourself to feel it in that moment but you can't let it overpower the conversation and overshadow it because it will just derail the conversation completely. Yeah, and that, well, those emotions are kind of normal, but you need to be able to manage them in mm. that sort of situation. But I think it's um, yeah, really fascinating discussion. So that's something coming up later. So let's dive into this episode's stories. Bob Iger is coming up to his first anniversary of his second stint as chief exec of Disney. Antonia's piece looks at whether it's wise to bet on a boomerang CEO and where a you know former CEO might look like a safe pair of hands but experiences show there are potential pitfalls of restoring a former leader to their post. This phenomenon, as it plays out in relation to boomerang CEOs, has been dubbed the Steve Jobs syndrome, obviously referring to when Apple brought Jobs back to the company in 97 and became the success story it is today. But according to a a chief change officer, Adrian Stallum, 
he says, actually, if you look at the data on the whole, bringing back a former CEO isn't a great idea because they actually tend to underperform. And in Antonia's piece, she mentions various factors to look for that might impact the performance of a returning CEO. And one of those is the context in which they're brought back, perhaps an obvious point. But um, as Brad Harris, who's a HEC Paris management professor, says, a CEO's challenge is to preserve existing value and unlock new value for shareholders. A boomerang CEO could make some sense if the goal is to extract more from or correct some sort of degradation in an existing value source. But another sort of factor is the gap between tenures and whether the boomerang's knowledge and experience is actually still relevant to the context. Um, and a bit like what we were just saying about sort of negotiation tactics, but it's the idea to avoid this sort of hero complex, mm. you know, that success ultimately relies on the CEO being able to resist the temptation and let's be honest, perhaps the pressure mm-hmm. to play the hero, you know, they, they have been brought back and I, I guess people are expecting them to have all the answers. But um, actually, it's more important to be able to go in, and this is what the um, Stalin was saying, go in and actually say, here's a blank sheet, pretend I know nothing, mm-hmm. tell me where my customers are, tell me what they want, tell me what technology I can use, where is the future, mm-hmm. and actually reassess based on the existing kind of context. And I think that's going to be very hard to do for a lot of boomerang CEOs because mm-hmm. they're being brought back exactly for the mm-hmm. reason because they were previously a hero. Yeah. Whereas, will, Even if they come in with that blank slate kind of mentality, mm-hmm. there is that fear that they may fall into old habits yeah. because they're comfortable in that role. They've done it before, they know it, they know the business. And in reality, you don't actually have to explain how things work. Unless you said there's been 10 plus years you know, and the business has changed fundamentally. If it's maybe they left two, three years later and nothing much has changed in the business and then they come back, it's almost like they're slipping back into that role again and there is that concern that nothing fundamental will change. They'll just slip back into old habits and people will know what to expect from them. But I guess in some ways they're kind of being validated Mm. by doing that though, aren't they? Because if you're bringing back somebody, a former person, to do exactly the same role, what you're mm. essentially saying is you were very successful last time and we believe in you again. Mm. And I think a lot of people probably interpret that as a, can you go back and do exactly mm. what you were doing before? But I, I guess perhaps the point is, no, we need your expertise and mm. your kind of brain to do yeah. to be successful again, but perhaps in a slightly different mm. situation. And as you said, it depends on the circumstances in which they left. Mm. If they left off their own volition... They realised that they needed to move on because they wanted to move into a different sector or they retired or, you know, they just needed a change. Perhaps that the breakup there might be slightly more amicable and therefore the return might be slightly easier. Whereas if they were sort of either resigned in disgrace or they were they went through a vote of no confidence and were ousted and then they're brought back, it's like, well, you couldn't do it without me. You realised that you couldn't actually, you had a good thing and you didn't know how good you had it yeah. until you lost it. And so then it's almost that worry that if you bring back the chief executive that in that moment you didn't want and then you realise, oh, actually, we needed their expertise, we needed their knowledge and their strategy and actually this is how we can do it. It's like, well, how's that chief executive going to react? Mm. Are they actually going to take on board any perhaps suggestions for improvement or are they going to come back with an even bigger ego yeah and make things 10 times worse yeah I, I tell you what I would worry about a little bit as well when you see a business bringing back a former CEO obviously it sort of suggests that they think they've lost their way to begin mm. with I also think 
oh, there must be something going on in that business because a business is bigger than just a leader. And obviously mm. a leader is very important mm. and helps sort of share the direction. But if you're building a proper business that's got kind of a you know, good culture and you, you have a succession plan, you know, a good business should be able to survive um, yeah. a change of leadership as long as that leadership hasn't done something completely yeah. awful, you know. And you, you worry that perhaps there's something else going on and, you know, is it a strategic move? And it's... On the outside, it's they're doing it for the benefit of the company when perhaps there is something more sinister going mm. on underneath. And and also you think, well, are they taking the place of somebody who could do it better mm. as well? If there are, as you said about succession planning, if you're bringing back somebody who's done it before and who's a more, even though they're very well established within the business and has proved that they can do it already, why are you not then giving somebody else a chance, someone who might have just as much knowledge mm. as this existing person yeah you know, why aren't you giving them the opportunity to step up into that role yeah and I think if you're if you're just being brought back to study the ship for a period mm. while you look for someone else I think you know that's kind of a common thing but if that's the kind of your long-term plan is to bring back that mm. chief executive sometimes yeah just worry a little bit about the longevity of a business and how well that original CEO mm. has actually built the business up and if it's all mm. just around that sort of the cult of that particular leader then that doesn't feel particularly healthy in the long run. I should also just make the point that we're not actually talking about any specific businesses here. No. And, and that's um, not making this point about Disney or any of the others that we mentioned. But um, mm. it's definitely an interesting thing to watch play out. So I, I think the upshot of the conversation is that if you are a chief exec that has been brought back, try to rein in your ego and, and not think it's a kind of, it's a carte blanche to do exactly mm. what you want <laughs> forevermore. <laughs> the next piece, or series of pieces, I should say, is our Big Divide series, and that's been incredibly popular with our readers. And it's exploring why we still can't all agree on hybrid work. And this is coming off the back of a range of large companies mandating that workers return to their offices for at least three days a week. JP Morgan Chase's CEO, Jamie Dimon, said that workers that did not want to follow the company's return to the office edict could not do it elsewhere. And that was a sentiment echoed by Amazon's boss last month when he said it's probably not going to work out for office resisting staff. And these sort of hardline positions that they've taken are typical of a debate that has pitted um, in each other's derisory lexicon, the shirkers against the out of touch. And as Antonia writes in her piece, some describe the evolution of working practices as a catastrophe, whereas others see it as a revolution. Now, our listeners will be well aware of the various arguments for and against hybrid work, but I think it's quite interesting why this is all coming to a head. She's interviewed Randall Peterson, who's a professor at the Leadership Institute at the London Business School, and he believes that the pandemic forced change, but then this return to some sort of sense of normality. As I say this, COVID is circulating mm. quite rapidly through um, there's certainly various parts of London, but um, this sort of a sense of a return to normality is causing people's preconceived ideas to reassert themselves. And he sees this as one of the big reasons why the office debate is sort of kicking off again. And obviously it's very contextual. Antonio interviewed Sir Martin Sorrell, who's the founder and executive chairman of S4 Capital. And he says there's a sort of geographic dimension at play here too, on which basis there's a sort of huge variation in terms of what is acceptable and what is possible. And in his sort of global business, in his Asia offices, employees are in the office for around four to five days a week already. Whereas in North America, he would have sort of thinks about one or two days is more typical. And again, every have these debates, the sort of laptop classes, as mm. Elon Musk calls them, them are certainly in a different position to perhaps factory workers or school teachers. Mm. So it's a, a kind of a very polarizing debate generally. What I find interesting is the main 
point that a lot of people make against hybrid working is this fear of a lack of productivity, of being unproductive. But then if you look back to 2020, I mean, you know, if we're only looking at office-based professions here, everyone was working from home and we managed to keep things going. I mean, of course, there were, there were casualties, but a lot of businesses did manage to keep going. So it baffles me, really, when they say, you know, if we introduce hybrid working, which isn't a full lockdown style that we had back in 2020. It's a mixture of the two. We have the best of both worlds. Why do they suddenly think that the productivity is going to crumble when people manage to, in some cases, were more productive during the pandemic because they had that added level of pressure? People were separated from one another and they wanted to maintain, you know, a good standard of business. They wanted to maintain good products for their customers, good service for the the people that use their products or interact with their company. So they were sort of working, going above and beyond. So productivity was on the forefront of their mind. Why do they suddenly think that that's going to dissipate? I'd be interested to see where they they get those fears, Mm. where those fears come from, unless they have evidence within their own company in a sort of business by business basis that, well, within our company, this is what we've seen with hybrid working. We've introduced it and it didn't work. Much in the case of the what we're going to talk about now, Simon Swan, that's something that he talked about um, when he introduced hybrid working. It just didn't work for his company specifically. But if it works for your company and you know that it works, then just allow it to work. And if it works for other people, allow them to do it. Don't have a blanket, you know, one rule for everybody. It should be based on the culture that you have within your business and whether you know that the people within your business can handle that way of working. Mm, I suspect what's happening is that a lot of businesses, sort of high profile businesses are mandating people return. And that kind of gives other mm. other sort of chief execs confidence who perhaps are not particularly happy mm. with hybrid work or haven't been particularly happy with it. And that it gives them more confidence to think, okay, mm. there's more of a wave here. There's going to be the labour market's getting slightly tighter mm. and there's the cost of living crisis and all the kind of businesses, are other businesses are doing it too, so mm. we can as well. But yeah, as you mentioned, we interviewed one chief exec who told staff to come back to the office five days a week, which seems pretty draconian in this mm. sort of debate, but he was adamant that he doesn't regret his decision. And this is Simon Swan, who's the chief exec of a recruitment agency marketplace called Hiring Hub. And he believes that the culture is what gave his business an edge pre-COVID And after implementing the hybrid model, he felt like his business had sort of lost its energy. Some of the old guard had left just as sort of natural attrition. Newer hires were trying to figure it out from home and were dropping the ball and all the sort of metrics of his business were down. So he responded by being clear and open with everyone, by explaining the problem, asked everybody to come back in five days a week and then was very clinical about the date it started. And some people did leave as a result but he says he doesn't regret the move. He acknowledges it was a scary thing to do. And he says that point of actually asking Mm. people to return, he said that was the scary step, but the important step. Mm. Because once you've jumped over that cliff edge, you can then start to understand the fallout of the decision and how you can manage that. Mm. He's noticed lots of benefits, he says. And also he feels particularly about from new starters perspective. Now, this has always been part of the working Mm. debate, hasn't it? But he doesn't feel like he's letting down new starters anymore. And we have, as part of this series, we've got a series of other pieces looking at the impact particularly on new starters um and um and daryl fielding wrote us an opinion piece saying that she believes new recruits deserve better from their work from home loving managers and she said that even though the kind of new starters Mm. don't really necessarily see the benefits of working in the office Mm. at the moment because i guess they're not used to having done it they haven't Mm. seen what the benefits that that brings 
but she said that she thinks they're being let down by managers who are probably in a different life stage perhaps or in a different kind of career mm-hmm. position wants yeah. to just work from home I do think though if you if you're going to do that because he he mentioned there you know how new hires were kind of dropping the ball working from home I wonder though if that could have been rectified by just some better training do you not think a bit more training a bit more support rather than just letting them figure it out for themselves because they're new they're not going to I think give them the same time and training and support that you would give them if they were in the office I do wonder if perhaps that's an excuse as to why they perhaps were dropping the ball when really I mean I don't know maybe they did offer um, support and training for people working from home but it wasn't explicitly pointed out in the piece so I'm not sure whether my, my first instinct would be well how did you support them while working from home? What was mm. the what was the actual reason? Because if you give people enough contact with you, you can do that over via Zoom or Teams or however, and give them the right training and the right support. They can do it in a kind of more hybrid setting. So I do wonder whether that was perhaps an issue. But again, it wasn't mentioned in the piece. So. I think I think that's an interesting point. I mean, he does say in the piece that his preferred method is actually just kind of go around and mm. you know speak to them individually there, walking around the mm. office. And I have spoken to a couple of chief execs who talk about you know being able to sort of feel the room, feel the energy in the mm. air, read the room, and it is hard. Is I can mm. see both points. It is you're you're quite completely right that that actually perhaps it's laziness on the part of some people not learning how to kind of properly mm. translate that online. But I do think it's much easier when you've got a team around you and mm. the sort of process of osmosis of just picking things yeah. up and sort of correcting points that can be perhaps quite minor points but seem very formal if you're kind of set mm. up an online meeting to discuss it. Mm. So I, I can definitely see both sides yeah. of that. It was also interesting in the piece he he pointed out how this full-time, you know, working full-time in the office works for them because a lot of the people that they hire are very extroverted. And I wonder if that's a little bit alienating to people who are perhaps less extroverted. I would be more of a slightly more introverted person. I've never been extroverted. And oftentimes it's quite difficult to be introverted because there's so much attention and focus given to people who shout the loudest. Mm. And often the people that shout the loudest shouldn't be shouting that loud and maybe should be quiet a little bit but that's just me being bitter um <laughs> i do wonder perhaps if they're alienating really talented people who could be a really great team member but because they are that little bit introverted and they do prefer that hybrid working that therefore you're missing out on talent you're not widening the scope enough and also for people whose lives need to have that flexibility if they're working parents if they're carers if they have a physical disability there are so many reasons as to why people prefer a hybrid working it's not as simple as assuming that they're going to be unproductive or they're going to be lazy or it's just because they don't want to they're too lazy to come into the office you're not thinking about all the other factors that go into that decision to either work from home full time or adopt that hybrid model. So I do worry that they're closing themselves off to a large number of potential talent, especially because we're in a bit of a talent crisis and people are constantly trying to retain talent and attract talent. You're kind of shooting yourself in the foot there by having this quite strict model. I mean, again, I don't know if they do offer perhaps on a case by case basis 
depending on your situation, they can offer it flexibly. But if you're not upfront with that in the hiring process, you're going to be alienating a lot of potentially really talented people mm. in your business. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the debate's definitely still got more legs, mm. hasn't it? This is, um, <laughs> it's not finished yet. Mm. So we'll wait and see what happens. So that's it for this week. And now on to the interview with Scott Walker. So I guess my first question and one that many of our listeners will probably also have is how does one exactly become a kidnap negotiator? I know that you um, spent 16 years working as a Scotland Yard detective, but I imagine that becoming a kidnap negotiator is not something that is often the first thing that people come to mind when they think of a career path. Yeah, that's a great question. I'm racking my brains to think when I was at school, in the careers chat, did he ever mention, Scott, you could become a train driver or a lawyer or a negotiator. That never actually came up. So I almost fell into it by accident. Yes, I was in the police, but I was always interested in what makes people tick. And all the roles I had in the police covered that as well. And I was just really curious as to why do we do what we do, particularly in times of stress and conflict and uncertainty. And then the last few years of my career, I got the opportunity to do some negotiation work for Kidnap for Ransom. And then when I left the police, I just did that transition into the private sector. And most people, in fact, everybody who does it outside of law enforcement, it is their second or third career that they've built on. Mm. And looking back over your career in that sector, what would you say has been perhaps your most stressful negotiation or most difficult negotiation? I understand that there are probably things that you can't go into too much detail about considering the sensitive nature. But if you look back and think there was a, a particular negotiation that was particularly challenging or stressful, what made it stressful? And then how did you navigate through it? You've got the physical side of things. And it's not quite like the movies. I'm not actually keen to put myself in any kind of physical danger. Although in one of my earlier kidnappings in London, there was a physical threat, but that was quite easily rectified by putting a lot of heavily armed police officers around the place that we were. But in terms of a bit more stressful, it actually, we call it the crisis within the crisis. So dealing with the kidnappers is the easy bit. It's actually dealing with the issues and the challenges, the egos, the internal politics on our own side. So maybe within the client or the family, most of the time, or about 80% of my time is actually spent navigating the minefield that is a corporate crisis management team or family dynamics, as I'm sure a lot of people can attest. You know, it's in those small team dynamics, family relationships or corporate relationships where a lot of that stress can manifest itself and that will just be people like to appear that they're in charge and they know what they're doing even when the evidence to the contrary may contradict that when you find yourself in a particularly stressful negotiation what are some of the ways that you navigate through it and kind of keep your head and keep your cool to make sure that it's as successful as possible yeah I've learned over the years of what works and I call it the immediate action drill. So whether or not I'm trying to convince 
a CEO about a negotiation strategy that we need to follow. And this is actually whether or not it's in a kidnapping or in business now or within the family setting. The first step of the three steps is to interrupt that pattern somehow. And what I mean is if we get triggered, if we suddenly feel really angry or frustrated, it's actually just taking a moment to step up and walk outside or take a couple of breaths, for example. And once we do that, that obviously prevents us from saying or doing things we later regret. But then moves on to the second point, which is we just need to ride the wave of cortisol and stress that is pumping through our bodies for about 90 seconds. And biologically, that's what happens. And any longer than that, it just means we're stuck in some kind of lousy story that's going round and round and round inside of our heads. So if I can interrupt the pattern, I know I've got 90 seconds, two minutes, where I've just got to really resist from saying or doing something I'm going to regret. And then once I've tuned into that, I guess that feeling in my, inside my body, I can then start asking some better questions. Okay, what was all that about? Where did that come from? What's the real issue here? So I can bring more curiosity and objectivity to the negotiation rather than full of high emotion and subjectivity. If you look back and at some of your more successful negotiations or the ones that had the best outcome, what was it that made them particularly successful? What were some of those things or skills or techniques that you deployed to make them particularly successful? I think it's the ones that we take the initiative. There has to be a calculated risk. Nothing is ever guaranteed. But that's because my first job in any negotiation is to sit down and encourage everybody to be forward-leaning. Imagine you want to be on the balls of your feet moving towards the challenge, the problem, the issue, rather than being flat-footed on your heels, metaphorically. Okay. And then once we've done that, it's always, and I use the word always deliberately, seeking that cooperation and collaboration. Yes, we may be able to hardball the deal through once or twice, but ultimately we want repeat business almost. We want to be able to succeed time and time again. And the only way we can do that is on our own side and with the people on the other side of the table is to be seeking that cooperation and collaboration. And the other aspect comes down to trust. It's a two-sided coin. In order to be trusted, we need to be trusting of others as well. I would say that in kidnap for ransom negotiations, trust is the number one factor that will determine the success or otherwise. And when you think about it, it's probably one of the most dangerous, unregulated industries in the world, yet there's a 93% chance of success with a negotiation. Now, they're pretty good odds. When you think about it, zero oversight, probably the most horrific supply chain you can think of in the world. And if something goes wrong, people can die. Yet there's a 93% success rate because there's that trust and the cooperation and collaboration that is established. And we get there by taking the initiative and a calculated risk. Has there ever been a time where you've perhaps failed to negotiate successfully? And what things did you learn from that? I think it's when we do the opposite of what 
I just mentioned there is when we look to hardball or force through or dictate how things are going to be rather than putting ourselves in the shoes of the other person. And in terms of negotiations I've been involved in, thankfully, you know, touch wood, they've all been successful in the kidnapping sense. But I've noticed is that when we play to our own egos, when it's all about us, and we dismiss where the other side is coming from, and we fail to even identify or reflect back our understanding of that, it just kind of falls apart, to be honest. And so, you know, when we want to play it safe, perhaps, when we're driven by ego, when it's all about us, when we don't want to play the long game, when we don't want to be part of the team, when there isn't that trust there, when we undermine the psychological safety in these conversations, then it can unravel really, really quickly. And then it's really difficult to get back on track again. What would you say are the most important skills that leaders within a business need to become a really successful negotiator? I would say it's about emotional awareness and self-regulation. It's being able to operate more often than not from a place of equanimity. So you can be calm at the center of the storm, of the crisis, which is why I call the book Order Out of Chaos, because you need to be able to bring that order and that sense of stability to whatever you're dealing with. And so it goes back to the whole emotional intelligence piece. It's about developing that sensory acuity that you could be sat around a table or walking into a room or being on a call with somebody And you're kind of sensing something. Okay, there's something out of alignment here. There's some incongruency perhaps. But by doing so, it becomes a superpower because then not only can you identify and if need be tame your own emotions that show up, you also become really, really highly proficient at understanding and dealing with other people's emotions because we can't bring about objective, rational decision-making and deal-making until we've addressed and reduced the high emotions involved. And emotions show up in every single negotiation. So they're always the first port of call. What are some of the biggest communication challenges that leaders are facing today? I think there's an overwhelm. There's a 24-7 bombardment of not just social media and the news, but in terms of demands on their attention. And it's trying to get some clarity and focus on what is important. Everybody wants a piece of the leader. Everybody's looking for their opinions. And now more so than ever, they don't necessarily have the luxury of time that they may have had five, 10 years ago with which to reflect and consider before making a decision. So the speed of decision-making or speed of processing and then decision-making, in my experience and working with teams in pretty much every industry and sector out there, is that time frame has shrunk and the skills needed to make sense of things and then communicate effectively has never been more important. Are there things that perhaps leaders do when they're negotiating that are a bit outdated or things that we don't need to do anymore? How can they update their negotiation skills to suit a 21st century business? Yeah, it's bring more curiosity than assumption to the table. You know, the days of the all-powerful, all-knowing, heroic leader 
I think those days are, are gone. Yes, you need to make the tough decisions, but actually in the teams I've worked with, the leader has given other people the voice. And again, that comes back to that psychological safety. Do people feel they have a voice? They can speak truth to power. They can dissent in a professional way. And actually that can then enable the leader because they park their own ego. They can then assess all the information in front of them. And then from that place, again, from equanimity, you're able to make the decisions that count. So it's essentially, it's first seeking to understand before being understood. What are some examples of really successful business negotiation that you've seen from the leaders that you've worked with? Well, that's ranged everything from buying small companies to investing to resolving some really tricky, say, a cyber extortion attack. And it comes down to these principles of they've parked their ego, they've been truly present, they've sought that cooperation and collaboration, they've built that trust, they've set out their expectations about what's needed and what they expect. So they've demonstrated what good looks like. But above all, and I've said the theme throughout all of it is, they are constantly looking, how can we improve? This never-ending sense of improvement, or as the military like to say, the unrelenting pursuit of excellence. And so they're the common themes through, as I said, whether or not it's successfully investing or buying a smaller company or whatever it is. They're the kind of attributes and themes and patterns that I've noticed show up time and time again. And it's also not being afraid to have the difficult conversations when they matter. You know, it's not shying away. It's sitting down and having those conversations that matter, but often people can put off because it's high emotion or they're just really difficult to have. So let's talk about your book, Order Out of Chaos, A Kidnap Negotiator's Guide to Influence and Persuasion. What was the inspiration behind writing that book? I think it was over a number of years, as I've already mentioned, I was noticing these patterns about what made the really successful leaders and their teams operate and succeed when the stakes simply can't get any higher. And it was noticing those patterns and seeing actually there's, there's some transferability here to the wider business world. In fact, it doesn't matter what organization you're in, whenever you've got people and teams, these principles apply. For example, it was being able to prepare and practice. It was getting the right people in the right seats on the right bus, as Jim Collins would say, is being able to prioritize and really master not only theirs, but the people's mindset. It was overcoming the organizational personal barriers to succeeding. And so noticing all of these, as I said, in pretty much every country I worked in and every industry and sector, and I thought, you know what? There's lots of great material here that other people, thankfully, who won't experience a kidnapping or an extortion event can still benefit from. So that was the impetus and that was the, the idea for the book. And over quite a few years, it just slowly took shape. In fact, it's probably four years from having the idea and it coming out. So it wasn't an overnight thing, which brought the book about. And then I was really keen to get people within only the industry I used to work in, but across business to read it, to endorse it, to demonstrate the benefit from it. 
What would you say are the top three practical things that business leaders can learn from the book? I'd say it's, as I said, seek first to understand before being understood. Risk is not a dirty word. Okay. And we can actually embrace that. And it's learning how to have those really difficult conversations by mastering the emotional self-regulation. They're the kind of two or three real main takeaways I would suggest. How can they then apply those lessons from the book into their own real life business negotiation situations? Well, often I say to people, you want to seek out worthy opponents. And what I mean by that is every day you will get the practice, the opportunities to practice these techniques, you know, such as being able to empathize with people, being able to reflect back your understanding of where somebody is, perhaps building that rapport and seeking that cooperation and collaboration. So you're going to get opportunities every day. And it's seeking out, let's call them opponents of people who, who may be quite difficult. And it's to practice where the stakes are relatively low. So when you do have that big deal, that big negotiation, that crisis, you've already worked the muscle so it becomes easier. Does that make sense? So it's practicing it as much as you can when the stakes are lower. Brilliant. Thanks for listening to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. We're available on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. 